we want Jesus first. We'd rather have Him than anything. And when this story ends, as it shall end one day for this civilization, may that be our testimony then as well, we pray. Now teach us in Holy Scripture and let the teaching be clear for the glory of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Let's begin this morning referencing a book you've probably never heard of. The White House has heard of this book. Staffers in the White House have actually read the book. Because the author of this book has been invited into the White House to conduct Bible studies with some of the staffers. Autographed copies of his book have been given by liaison friends to the president and the vice president, although we do not know whether those two leaders of our nation have opened the book or even touched it. The author is a Jew who converted to evangelical Christianity. His name, Joel Rosenberg, and according to his own blog, he has served as senior advisor to major U.S. and Israeli political leaders, including the former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. His genre as a writer, religious fiction. Here are some of his titles. Best-selling titles, by the way. The Last Jihad, The Last Days, The Ezekiel Option. That title won the coveted Evangelical Publishing Community's Gold Medallion Award for the Best Novel of 2006. But the book I'm referencing is his first nonfiction work that was just released this September. Title of the book, Epicenter, Why the Current Rumblings in the Middle East Will Change Your Future. Now, his blog also boasts that he's been interviewed by more than 300 radio and TV shows, including the major network and cable news outlets. You see his picture on the screen. The reason Rosenberg has caught the eye and the ear of the White House is because of his dramatic proposition that Bible prophecy predicts that Russia and Iran will unite in a final global conflict against Israel and the United States. And you can understand why that would get the attention of some in this nation. He's not alone, by the way. Evangelical preachers across this land espouse the same conviction. Bible prophecy, I don't know if... You've missed this, but Bible prophecy has become avant-garde again. In a moment, I'm going to quote from an interview Rosenberg gave just last week in which he voiced, voiced troubling recommendations for the president. We'll get to that in a moment. Question, is the end going to come the way Rose, Rosenberg predicts? I do not doubt that Rosenberg and this cadre of evangelical preachers are sincere, but I must tell you they are sincerely wrong. They are dead wrong as the explosive Bible prophecy we are going to study this morning will teach us. Open your Bible, please, to the twin book to the Apocalypse. This book's in the Old Testament. It's the book of Daniel. Open your Bible to Daniel chapter 11. Let us strap on our seatbelts and fly through this teaching today. Daniel chapter 11, Old Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible today, grab the Pew Bible right in front of you. It's the same translation that I'll be reading from this morning, the New King James Version. It would be page 606. Daniel chapter 11, page 606. We're going to drop down to the end. This is the Bible's longest prophecy. It starts in Daniel 10. It goes all the way through Daniel 11. It goes into Daniel 12, as we will note in just a moment. All right. 
Let's go. Daniel chapter 11. Drop down to the end of the chapter, verse 40. I'll start reading in verse 40. Daniel 11, verse 40. And at that time, at the time of the end... By the way, very fascinating about this prophecy. It moves from the time of the end all the way to the end of time, as you will note in just a moment. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Who's the him? The king of the north. And the king of the north shall come against him, the king of the south, like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them and pass through. Not a clue yet. Not a clue yet who these two kings are. Don't you dare miss next Sabbath. We get the, the summation of this series comes next Sabbath. And you will know, you will know who these, two, who these two kings are next week. So the king of the north, verse 41. He shall also enter the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab and the prominent people of Ammon. Verse 42. He, the king of the north, shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Verse 43. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. Now here it comes. Verse 44. New American Standard Version reads this way. But rumors from the east. See, that's the title of this teaching series. It's coming to an end next week. Rumors from the east. This says, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he, the king of the north, shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. Verse 45, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. We'll decipher that next week. Now, there's no break. When Daniel is writing this, there's no chapter. He said, oh, I need to get to chapter 12. There were no chapters. So it needs to just keep reading. We need to just keep reading as if there were no break. Chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time, the fall of the king of the north, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Take a breath. That's it. Suffice it to say, ladies and gentlemen, what we have just read contains two pieces of good news and one piece of bad news. And with your permission, we'll put the bad news in between the two good news pieces. There are three prophetic news bulletins. Take your study guide out and jot down what we know from a cursory reading that we have just taken together. Three news bulletins, prophetic news bulletins. The study guide in your uh, worship bulletin. Ushers, let's go. Let's get the study guides out. If you didn't get a study guide, just hold your hand up. Our friendly ushers will do everything they can to make sure that all the way to the back in the balcony that everybody gets a study guide. Just hold your hand up. You're going to want the study guide. Trust me, you will want it. And while they're doing that, let me talk to you on the, tele on the uh, television. There's a website. Let's put it on the screen right now. There it goes. That's our website, www.pmchurch.tv. Please go to our website. Click on there to this teaching series called Rumors from the East. This is the next to the last piece in this. It's entitled The Last Sunset, S-O-N set, The Last Sunset. There it says study guide. Click that and you will have the very same study guide that we will be filling out here together this morning. So take your study guide. Everybody have one? We're going to move now. You're going to need a pen. We're going to start writing. Let's go.
Bulletin number one. All right, there are three news bulletins, prophetic news bulletins in what we've just read. Bulletin number one, this is a good news bulletin. The king of the north will come to his end. Write in the word north, please. The king of the north. You say, what's so good news about that? Well, given the fact he is dark and evil, this is very good news. Trust me. And next Sabbath, the entire series shuts down in the teaching entitled King of the North. Don't miss it. We'll give prayerful, careful study to the final verses of chapter 11. Not today. Not today. Don't have time. News bulletin number two. Oh, this is bad news. Write it down. We are facing the worst global crisis and time of trouble in the history of this civilization. Daniel 12 has just made that point. Still ahead of us, by the way. We are not in it now. No, 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 no. It's it, the worst in history of civilization is yet ahead of us. Bulletin number two. And now bulletin number three. Good news again. Michael will stand up and deliver right in that word. Deliver. He will deliver Daniel's people from out of that awful crisis. Also, Daniel 12 verses one and two. In fact, let's read verse one again. Daniel 12 verse one. At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And, that, and at that time, your people should be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. So who is this Michael? This being whose name means who is like God. It can be a question. Who is like God? Or it can be a statement. Who is like God? You remember, those of you who have been a part of this entire teaching series, in part one, we spent some time actually looking at Michael. So... The, the uh, website that we, we just noted a moment ago, if you go back to that website, go to teaching number one, Rumors from the East, teaching number one, it'll all be there in that study guide. Let me just take a moment, and we'll put it on the screen for you, refresh your memory as to who Michael is. By the way, the name only appears in apocalyptic literature. That would be uh, the book of Daniel, the book of Jude, and the book of Revelation. Only appears there, always when there's a war, when there's a war between the forces of light and darkness, Michael shows up. And by the way, he wins every single time. Hallelujah. Every time he shows up, he wins. Who is Michael? Let's uh, review on the screen. In Jude 9, Michael is called the archangel. So from Jude 9, we know Michael equals archangel. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. You want to jot this down? You may. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The voice of the archangel, Paul writes, raises the dead. And then Jesus, in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, It's my voice that raises the dead. Leading the great Protestant reformer, Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon concluded on the basis of this biblical evidence that, Christ, that, that Michael is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. Jot that one down. If it's good enough for Melanchthon, it's good enough for me. Michael. The mighty second person of the Godhead, who whenever he shows up in battle, is shown up as Michael. So, what do we know from what we've just read? We know that when Michael shows up and stands up on behalf of Daniel's people, he wins. Here's the question. Who? This is the great question now. Who are Daniel's people? Joe Rosenberg comes along and says, oh, I know who Daniel's people are. Evangelical American preachers across this nation say, oh, we know who Daniel's people are. Rosenberg and those preachers all agree they are modern Israel and Jews living today. That's their conclusion. I was watching TV evangelist uh, Jimmy Swaggart. Do you remember that name? Just a couple Sundays ago, I'm watching him preach. And he's preaching in front of this massive backdrop, a map of the Middle East. 
And he's preaching his heart out because he is absolutely convinced that Israel is strategic to God's end time game plan. Oh, boy. That's why Joel Rosenberg just last week in an interview with the Washington Times newspaper in the nation's capital. That's why he made these statements. I'm going to put uh, Rosenberg's words on the screen for you. I'll read them. This is a part of that interview. Now, he's talking to the reporter. The key is we don't know at this moment whether the alliance that's emerging between Russia and Iran and these other Middle Eastern countries is, in fact, a fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. His new book says that's that that's what those chapters are teaching. We just don't know if it's now. But notice his point. Therefore, we can't base American foreign policy on the supernatural intervention by the God of Israel to protect Israel. This may not be the time for God to step in, in which case we better help him. That's his point. We need to take action to protect ourselves. I believe that 2007, Rosenberg, is going to be the year of decision for President Bush. Either he's going to take some form of action to stop Iran from going nuclear, or the moment may be lost. 2008 is a presidential election year. The year 2009 is the beginning of a new administration, and by then, it may be too late. Iran could have nuclear weapons by then. If Iran goes nuclear on President Bush's watch, it will erase all of the gains that we've made thus far in the war against radical Islam. And now here's a line that jumped out at me. I believe an apocalyptic war is coming in the Middle East in the next few years. Either Iran is going to launch it at us and Israel, or we're going to take action to stop them, end quote, Washington Times last week. So, question. Is Rosenberg right? Or is he looking in the wrong direction? Wouldn't it be something if, in fact, all of this is a part of a dark diversion and deceptive distraction? Not intentionally. I'm not talking about Rosenberg. I'm not talking about these TV preachers in the land. But what if, what if the prince of this world has much to gain by keeping the attention of the world focused on the Middle East? All the while, the impending crisis is coming not from the east, but out of the north, the king of the north. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Brilliant strategy. May I share with you why I respectfully believe that Rosenberg is wrong and why Israel in particular and tangentially Iran and Russia are not the key players in Earth's final movements. May I share that with you? Jot them down, please. I want to share with you now four principles of Bible prophecy interpretation, particularly Old Testament prophecy. Four Old Testament prophecy principles of interpretation. Jot these down. Number one, write it down, please. The Old Testament prophecies regarding the future glory of Israel and Jerusalem are primarily conditioned upon Israel's obedience to God. Obedience. Write that word in, please. And now you need to hear God make the very point himself. Go back three books to Jeremiah. I want you to read this in your own Bible. Jeremiah chapter 18. What's that page number? Jeremiah 18. That's page 521. All right? In the Pew Bible. Familiar story that begins this, this, this passage. Some of you might remember this story. It begins in verse 1 of, of Jeremiah 18. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, verse 2, Hey, Jeremiah, arise and go down to the potter's house. You know what a potter is? There's an artist that works with clay. You see the wheels? 
with their feet and they keep their hands. Hands get all red and brown, wet as they carefully shape those vases and whatever it is they make. All right. So arise and go down to the potter's house, Jeremy. And there I will cause you to hear my words. Verse 3. Then I went down to the potter's house. And there he was, making something at the wheel. And verse 4. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred. Ooh, a mistake. Crazy thing. Breaks. Ah. It was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again. Took it all apart. Made it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. Now I'm going to put the words on the screen. Because God says, I'm making my point now. This is verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, verse 6, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the, in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Look at this, verse 7. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I had thought to bring about. Upon it. Look at verse 9. And by the way, flip side is true. And the instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build it up, to plant it. If, verse 10, it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey. Key word. It does not obey my voice. Then I will relent. I'll change my mind concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Who's God talking to? Verse 11 cinches it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'm talking to you people, the chosen ones. I'm talking to you, God says. Write it down, please, in your study guide. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 11 teaches us that divine prophecies are conditioned upon human response. Response. The response is the key. Classic. I mean, let's, let's, let's look at two classic exhibits. Classic exhibit number A, letter A rather, is Nineveh. What did God do to Nineveh? He said Jonah to Nineveh. And he said, hey, Jonah, tell him I'm going to nuke. I'm going to nuke that city. Forty days and it's over. When the word went out and Jonah walked the streets, Nineveh, Nineveh from the king on, on down to the lowest slave, they all repented. And God said, man, I can't do this. They changed. Changed my mind. I won't destroy it. Classic exhibit A, Nineveh. Classic exhibit B, Israel. Write it down. Israel. I'm going to make you last forever and ever. I'm going to give you a kingdom that shall never come to an end. But then Israel walks away from the one that raised them up. And God says, ah, change my mind. I'm not going to do it. Does God have the right to do that? But of course, he's the potter. Jeremiah 18, you cannot miss the teaching in Jeremiah 18. So that's, that's, that's interpretive principle. Number one for Old Testament prophecy. Here comes number two. As a nation, Israel rejected God's appeal through Christ. Right in the word rejected. By the way, let me be quick to insert. This is not an anti-Semitic proposition. No, 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 no. The mass, come on. The masses of Israel during the time of Jesus gladly heard him, gladly embraced him as Messiah. And particularly after his crucifixion, resurrection and ascension by the tens of thousands, Jews accepted Christ as the Messiah. But tragically, the national religious leadership rejected him. Ay, ay, ay. That's why you have the prophecy in Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Just a few pages earlier in Daniel. God's talking about a probationary period that He's going to give after the exile that He's going to give to the children of Israel. Seventy weeks, Daniel. 
Bible scholars are clear that's 490 years, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint, and to anoint the most holy. God said, I'm going to give you 490 more years. But still, the national leadership of Israel said no. And God has no choice but to honor the freedom of even the community of faith. And it must have broken... It must have broken Jesus' heart to sob these words in Matthew chapter 23. Look at this. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you now desolate. It is over. Brokenhearted, God must accept free choice. And Jesus does. And as a consequence, the greatest Christian who ever lived, who was an Orthodox Jew and a rabbi himself, the mighty Apostle Paul gives us interpretation number three, clue to how to interpret Old Testament prophecy. Write this down, please. God turned as a result of their rejecting the Messiah. God turned from a geographical Israel to a spiritual Israel and a spiritual Jerusalem to become the recipients of the Old Testament's prophecies of future glory for Israel and Jerusalem. Take a look at this. Incontrovertible. Look at this. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Paul is writing. But he says, hey, readers, I want you to know it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Just because you say, I got DNA that says I'm from Israel. Paul says, too bad. Everybody from Israel is not really the Israel that God has promised. Notice the next verse. Nor are they all children because, hey, Abraham, you can, I got my family tree tied to his. But rather in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. It has to be out of faith. You have to receive it out of faith. The children of promise are counted as the seed. And now get this, guys. This is incredible. A little bit earlier in Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 28, Paul says, you want to know who a real Jew is? Take a look at this. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Forget it. Forget it. Well, what are you talking about then, Paul? Verse 29. Ah, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise... Catch that word. Notice that word. Whose praise is not from men, but from God. Paul's doing a little bit of a, a play on words here. The, the name Jew comes from the name Judah, and Judah means praise. You want, you want true praise? You want true praise? It won't be the cutting of your flesh or the DNA in your blood. It will be the change of your heart by faith in the Messiah. That's his point. One more, just in case. You say, uh, you're still not sure? This will send you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither now, neither Jew nor Greek, Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Would you write it down, please? This is Paul's point. Jot it down. Through faith in Christ, a new spiritual Israel, right in the word new, has been born, inheriting all the promises made to Abraham, the father of the Jews. And by the way, the great Jew who became 
the foremost leader of the New Testament church, Peter himself agrees with Paul. He says, right on, Paul, look at this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter's writing to Gentiles, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises. See, there's the word praise again. The true Jew is the one in Christ, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Guys, jot this down real quick. Peter's point, the new community of spiritual Israel is a holy nation. God has a new Israel. It's a nation. It's no longer tied to geography. It's tied to the heart. The heart's response to the Messiah. A spiritual community. A nation, he calls it. Wow. Therefore, we have principle number four. Jot it down. Old Testament prophecies regarding Israel's future that would have been literally fulfilled had Israel remained obedient to God must now be reapplied to spiritual Israel, that's a key point, focusing on spiritual intent rather than geographical detail anymore. No more geography now. It's over. It's over. Which means that Joel Rosenberg's use of Ezekiel, listen carefully now, because you're going to move in circles where this will be brought to you. Joel Rosenberg's use of Ezekiel 38 and 39, that's the ancient prophecy about a king named Gog from a land called Magog. You've heard of, have you heard of Gog and Magog? He says, that's Russia and Iran coming against Israel. That means, based on these four principles, that Joel's, Rosenberg's using that prophecy to prove his prediction that Russia and Iran will one day unite against Israel and by political and evangelical extension, the United States is simply, sadly, wrong. He's wrong. It would have come true had Israel, after the exile, remained true to God, it, but it did not. Rosenberg obviously, is oblivious to these four critical Bible prophecy interpretation principles that we've just shared. You can answer anybody. Anybody. Lock on. Letting the Bible interpret itself. And so, Joel Rosenberg, Tim LaHaye, have you heard of him? Left Behind? The identical premise that drives LaHaye, drives Rosenberg. These other evangelical preachers, by the way, well-meaning though they are, have mistakenly interpreted Old Testament prophecies to continue to be literal, unconditional prophecies that can be applied to Israel at the end of time. And that simply is wrong. Paul has made his point. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. Come on, Pastor. What's the big deal? Let, let it go. I would let it go. And the reason why I'm so passionate about this, were it not for the danger that such an interpretation brings to the Christian community in this nation and around the world, clearly the dark and evil prince of this world is working overtime to distract the church by events in the Middle East. Hey, guys, look, 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 look. And while everybody's staring over there, here it comes, gaining ahead of steam, the king of the north. It's not the east, it's the north. If I were the devil, I'd do the same thing. Get everybody looking here. Surely something's going to happen here for the end time scenario. And boom, out of the back, I'm brought down. Brilliant. Devil, brilliant. As we will discover next week in the conclusion. Go back to uh, Daniel, Daniel 12. Let me read it. 
Again, Daniel 12, verse 1, And at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, Daniel. Everyone who is found written in the book, the four interpretation principles that you and I have just noted mean that Daniel's people who are delivered at the end of time are not modern Jews. They are not modern Israel. They are the people of God living in the final generation. In fact, would you jot this down, please? The deliverance promised here is not for the nation of Israel, but rather for the people of God, the world over. Keep your pen moving. Daniel is clear. They are not delivered because they are his people. They are delivered because their names are in the book. What book? The twin book that Daniel tells us. It is the Lamb's book of life. Write that down. A people at the end of time who will stand radically and boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, would you jot this down too? Let's not escape the bad news. And who this people will face the most dreadful crisis in the history. Write it down. In the history of time. Oh, mercy. Notice Jesus' somber declaration. In the, in, in the Gospels, little mini-apocalypse. Matthew 24, the signs of the times chapter is the little mini-apocalypse Jesus quotes Daniel as he describes this final crisis. This is Dan Matthew 24, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Direct quote out of Daniel, all right? And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Jot that down. Jesus says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. The New International translates it, no one would survive. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not talking about a little, a, a little conflagration in the Middle East here. This is massive. It is global. And it is before the return of Christ. The worst in the history of this race is yet ahead. That's the bad news. And by the way, that little apocalyptic classic, Great Controversy, page 622, jot this down. It is often the case that trouble is greater in anticipation than in reality. Have you ever had to have surgery? <clears throat> have you ever? You know what? The worst part of surgery is not the surgery. It's the countdown to the surgery. I visit people all the time. I was just with one of our dear members, Charlotte Groff, this last week who came very successfully through her surgery. But boy, I'm visiting with her. It's the anticipation that kills you. Once the surgery is over, hey, hallelujah, I made it. Now, that's often the way it is in life. But notice the point the author is making here. Very significant. It is often the case that trouble is greater in anticipation than in reality. But this is not true of the crisis yet ahead of us. The most vivid presentation cannot reach the magnitude of the ordeal. When I, when I, when I first came to this uh, parish... Some years ago, a seminary professor took me aside and said, Hey, Dwight, he's a little concerned about how the children were being uh, uh, prepared. And he said, You know what? We, 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 you, you can't be teaching the time of trouble. You can't, be you can't scare kids into accepting Jesus as Savior, please. You know what? I concurred with that professor then, and I concur still today. However, fear is not, fear is not the proper motivation forever. It's not the proper motivation for coming to Jesus. I understand that. However, I do fear that the pendulum has swung so far the other way that today we are practically oblivious to the impending crisis that is going to crash down around us. 
Oh, man, no, not to worry. Please, it's no big deal. You better tell that to Jesus, and then you tell it to Daniel. And while you're at it, tell the writer of Great Controversy the same. Jack DeCon, my friend here in the Theological Seminary, has written the book Secrets of Daniel. Look at these words of Jack. We have no knowledge as yet of the nature of the despair that will torment the last survivors of human history. Got no concept. It has no historical precedent. And I want to just hit the pause button right there. There is no historical calibration. Okay, let's see. Like it was back there, that's what it will be now. No, 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 no. There's nothing ever been like what's coming. You get the point? It's bad. All right, that's Dukan's point. There, it has no historical precedent. History becomes a battlefield. That's what will happen at the end. A battlefield of raging forces and evil seems to have triumphed over good. Why go on, people will wonder. Doubts smother the feeble flame of faith. With nowhere to turn, God's people seem to have no hope left. It is truly a time of distress, quoting Jeremiah 30, verse 7. It is a time of trouble such as has never been. The Bible is clear, ladies and gentlemen. The last sunset will usher in a very... The darkest night in the history of the human race. Save for Gethsemane. Save for Gethsemane. We don't need the impending time of trouble to motivate us. I agree with you. Although we surely need to be reminded, do we not, that we do not have forever. The spiritual decisions you are waiting to make, the character changes you are waiting to undertake, ought not to be put off. Same book that tells us it'll be worse than, than anticipation. Great controversy. Beautiful here. And you got it in your study guide. It is in this life that we are to separate sin from us. Through faith. I love this. Through faith in the atoning blood of Christ. Michael became Emmanuel. The second person of the Godhead became one with the human race. The atoning blood of Christ. Our precious Savior invites us to join ourselves to Him. To unite our weakness to His strength, our ignorance to His wisdom, our unworthiness to His merits. God's providence is the school in which we are to learn the meekness and lowliness of Jesus. And here's a line that got me. The Lord is ever setting before us not the way we would choose. Isn't that something? I'm always giving God orders. I'm always telling this is what would be best for me. Then I need this, and then you do this, and if you will just cooperate with me, we'll get along just fine. Do you ever do that with God? Nag, 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 nag. What's the point here? This hit me. The Lord is ever setting before us not the way we would choose. God doesn't choose death. God doesn't choose disease. God doesn't choose divorce. God didn't choose evil. But He lets you go through it. He lets you go through it. He chose that way. He said, I'll be with you. Always, even to the end of the age. Trust me. It's best for you. Ah. The Lord is ever setting before us not the way we would choose, which seems easier and pleasanter to us, but the true aims of life. It rests with us to cooperate with the agencies with heaven employs, which heaven employs in the work of conforming our characters to Jesus, the divine model. None, final sentence, none can neglect or defer this work, but at the most fearful peril to their souls, end quote. Which being interpreted means, ladies and gentlemen, we cannot, we dare not put off to tomorrow what you know in your heart you have got to do today. You can't put it off. How do you know you're going to be here tomorrow? How do you know you're going to be here tomorrow? 
You have no knowledge. I may bury you this week. You say, well, because you said that, I'll make sure you're not the one burying me. (laughs) You got the point. That's what our Power 24 focus, these 24 hours, is all about. We cannot put off a seeking, seeking a deeper, more meaningful relationship with Christ. There comes a time when you clear the decks and you go without what's your favorite activity. You go without what's your favorite food and you just pray. You go deeper with Jesus and you say, Jesus, take me to another level with you. I want to go deeper with you. That's what Power 24 is about. You don't have tomorrow. you got today. Oh, gracious. Shall we fear tomorrow? Never. Oh, mercy. Why? Because we've got, we've got Michael. Read it again one last time. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up. Hallelujah. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even at that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. We have Michael. And when you've got Michael, you've got God. And when you've got God, there is nothing to fear for the future. And when there is nothing to fear for the future, there is nothing in the present that can hold you back. 489 years ago, this very week, a young German monk spreading those fallen autumn leaves in Wittenberg strode up to the university bulletin board, which happened to be the wooden doors of the cathedral church. And he hammered up on that door his 95 theses, 95 convictions Martin Luther posted. Why, I believe... That ultimately, salvation cannot be sold by an institutional church, cannot be manipulated or controlled by a power, that it's only in Christ Jesus. I believe that. And he nailed it up. And 489 years later, his battle cry is still true. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. I love that second stanza of his. Put it on the screen for you. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing doth ask who that may be. Christ Jesus. It is He. Lord Sabaoth His name. From age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Daniel declares, not must. He does. He wins. Michael shows up. And when Michael shows up, the right man on our side, Michael wins. And please do not forget this. When Michael wins, we win with him. Which is an ending. You've got to lock this away. That is an ending we must never forget as we prepare to face the king of the north. It may look like it's all over. But never forget, Michael wins. Michael wins. Don't you ever, don't you ever step away from Michael.